Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, which is a podcast that you are listening to. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. With me today is my guest, the one and only Snow from Yellow Peril Tactical. Hi, Snow. How are you on this totally different day than last time? Hello. I am doing well. Yay. Yeah. It's sunny, so that's good. Yeah. I'm having one of those days where, like, it was like 60 degrees in the mountains, and I'm like, oh, yay, it's so nice. I can go do things outside. And then I'm like, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be this nice. (laughs) This is bad. Yeah, mixed feelings on the on the good weather. I I hear ya. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to our future where our seasons are um, summer, 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 hellmouth, and those yeah. are the four seasons. Yeah, maybe like a ice storm as a treat every like few years. Oh yeah, totally. Like during any of the seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exciting. I'm really excited about the future. Sophie is our producer. Hi, Sophie. How are you? Uh, I had the exact same conversation with my mom today. I was like, oh, it's so nice out. Look at this blue sky. And then I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. shit. It's probably not supposed to be that way. This is probably yeah, a bad thing. At, you probably want as much rain as you can get in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit. Not good. I was like, ah, ooh. Yeah. But anyways, glad to be here. Yay. Ian is our audio engineer, and our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. Oh, this yeah. is part two of our two-part series, which for those who are doing the math means it's the second and final part about the pre-Vietnam War resistance to French colonialism in Vietnam. And of course, we've got two protagonists we've declared cool. There's Novan, who wrote a memoir called In the Crossfire, that a decent chunk of this is based on. And it's anything that feels narrative, I'm probably getting from that memoir. And the other cool person is the Vietnamese people who fucked up everyone in the world who fucked with them. And don't you forget it. No. <laughs> I'm hoping no one listening to this ever forgets it and tries to colonize Vietnam. I don't really want them to colonize anywhere. If you're listening to this, 
I'm indifferent. Okay, I will come out on the, I don't know if it counts as colonization if it's a planet with no living life forms on it. I've got like mixed feelings about Mars colonization, but I don't think it could be understood in the same context as colonization of people. That's my um, wild cancelable take. Interesting. You look like you don't agree with me here. You know, I just, I, when I hear Mars and colonization of Mars, I think about uh, Octavia Butler's parable of the sower and talents. Well, mm-hmm. And then that's as far as I get, because then I think about that book and then I stop listening. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's fair. I'm really excited for Elon Musk to lead an expeditionary um, mission to Mars as well as he has led Twitter. And I hope he dies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, no, yeah, no, yeah. I just and it's on tape. Yeah. I want to see it. Yeah, yeah, I want to see it. Yeah. We'll <laughs> try and spread around on what's left of Twitter. That's like, you know, you know that man is a dead man switch for Twitter, though. You know oh, that if man. he doesn't, if he doesn't press a button once every hour, all of Twitter goes down. Yeah, it felt like he might have been dying yesterday based on how poorly the app was working. Yeah. Is it just like connected to his spinal cord, you think? Oh, probably like like pure that, cyberpunk that style. That tracks. That and like tracks. a cyberpunk yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. Oh, I hope it's a two-way. Okay. And um, so where we left off, resistance to French Indochina was starting to heat up again. And to be honest, it never really actually stopped being hot. But it would like, you know, cycle between hot and very hot. Communists and nationalists and religious groups and bandits and just a whole goddamn ton of people who didn't want to listen to the fucking French are doing some fighting. And we've made it up to 1930. Our hero, Novan, is about 17 or 18 at this time. He's not quite on the main stage yet, but he's starting to be around for the events that happen. In 1930, a garrison of Vietnamese troops led by the French mutinied as part of a conspiracy by a secret society of more than 1,500 people. Because once again, secret societies are doing all kinds of shit. Unfortunately, the leaders of this group were guillotined, but many of the rank and file fled the country, and they're going to come back later. They're like, they try to do this mutiny, it fails, all their leaders get guillotined, because guillotine's not actually a symbol of working class resistance in most I was places. just going to say that. Last episode, we talked about like the French being like, no, revolution's like our thing, we oui, we, oui. and so yeah. they're going to bring guillotines. Oh, yeah. And Okay, I'm just, okay, just wanted to yeah. make sure everybody heard that. All yeah, right. they guillotined fucking hundreds or thousands of uh, Vietnamese colonial subjects who were revolting against them um, during this time. Uh, which I think they've only gotten one king, and so I feel like one king to all of these... Co- anyway. Yeah. Um, I wanted to like the guillotine as a symbol, but I no longer do. Damn, I should maybe get that tattoo removed then. <laughs> <laughs> See, I always liked it because I always thought it was the symbol that contained its own critique. Right. You know, it's like being like, hey, sometimes violence in revolutionary situations might be necessary, but we all know it could easily go too far. Because mm-hmm. that's what I thought that we all knew the guillotine meant was revolutionary violence going too far. But instead, people just completely unironically liked it. And I'm like, yeah, there are other means that people use to get rid of tyrants that. Um... Anyway, so all of these, the rank and file who lose uh, and flee the country. They show up again later and just continue throwing down. They just like kind of take a break, come back later, and they're fucking cool. Peasants are running around torching official records with kerosene. Poor workers in the city are rioting against the capitulation task ta- tax. That's the word I can't pronounce this time. And being gunned down for it. 
And news about all these revolts are spreading around by illegal newspapers. Many of them are basically zines going hand-to-hand between workers and peasants. We love a good zine. I know. And between workers and peasants, I, like, literally mean both directions in a really cool way that we're going to keep talking about a little bit. Um, This whole, like, dichotomy of, like, the workers versus the peasants is, like, fucking nonsense. And I think Mm -hmm. that Vietnamese resistance shows it really well. By the end of 1930, it's just open revolt all over the place. Prisoners are being set free. Cop shops are being ransacked. Whole villages and then regions where the French do not dare step foot. And importantly to our story, when peasants take over an area, they tend to form democratic councils to administer the region. And there's a word for this type of local rule by democratic council. That word is Soviet. Because that's what people forget is that the word Soviet means fucking local control of a region. Anyway... Or upon it's so be it. Ah, excellent, oh. excellent. Zing. <laughs> Which okay, but in, like instead of like saying like say la vie, so be it. Be like yeah. so be okay. Anyway, that's, that's so be it. <laughs> I want to quote Novan directly here. In September 1930, in the villages of Naan, which had been abandoned by the notables and the local militia, Naan is this. I'm no longer quoting. Naan is this whole big fucking province in north central Vietnam. The peasants began organizing themselves into Soviets. They took over the administration and, without touching the landed property, proceeded to share out the communal land that had been annexed by the landlords. They confiscated rice reserves and distributed them to the starving, allocated agricultural work collectively, abolished taxes, imposed lower farm rents on the landowners, and launched a literacy campaign. These Soviets extended themselves to the provinces of Hatin, Kanlo, Thakha, and Hungshan. The French I'm no longer quoting. The French responded by just carpet bombing people. Mm, That's what they did. Okay. All right. Because, of course, they did. Hundreds of people were killed at a time. But this is, like, literally the coolest thing that I can imagine. In any episode I ever do, like, people fucking taking over their areas and running them through democratic councils and, like, Mm -hmm. distributing the land evenly. It just doesn't get better than that. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's what it really should be all about, like, all of our work. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. The cities are fighting, too. The revolt is less intense in the cities. Uh, I think basically there's, like, less capacity to actually take and hold terrain. Strikes and marches and the occasional assassination are happening in the cities. The government, being French, set up the guillotine in front of Saigon's central prison. Over, the f- over a few years of this uh, revolt, there's 12,000 political arrests with almost 100 beheadings. And no Vaughn, he's 17 or so at this point. And he's bicycling back to his village with the the zines rolled up in the handlebars to distribute among the peasants, which just fucking rules. That's creative. I know. I would never think to look there. And he's reading them to people who can't read when he gets there. Soon he's organizing with people at his work. Um, They can't even say words like labor union. So instead they build a mutual aid society, one of these things where everyone like takes care of each other or whatever. And they pool money to take care of each other and they meet under the guise of like birthday parties and shit because in order to have, the French don't let more than like, I can't remember if it's 17 or 27, some low number of people, um, Vietnamese people meet in one place at any given time without getting like special permission. That's so fucked because we have such big families. Yes, kids one of 13. I mean, 12. Yeah, Yeah. like our our family, like my mom would be like, oh, it's like your fifth cousin. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Damn. All right. Well, and so they, they can get permission for birthday parties. And so they use those. The birthday parties become the labor organizing meetings. 
And then the the coolies, the least paid people at the job, the at at his place they go on strike. And so he goes up and he's like, "Hey, our our quote unquote mutual aid fund, it is now your strike fund." Oh, sick. Yeah. Do what you want with it. And then he acts as an interpreter for the strikers and they win a, a modest pay raise. So this is how he gets into labor organizing. In as much as anyone is organizing the huge revolt, there's two major players. Both are communists. Um, there's the Communist Party, which takes its orders from the Comintern, the Bolsheviks up in Russia. And they're already doing some wacky stuff. They had a, a revolutionary tribunal. This is like way before they have any power, any territory. They have a revolutionary tribunal for one of their own members and sentence him to death and kill him because he... Uh, Fell in love with another comrade, and that took his mind off his duties. Wait, no way. That is at least how it is presented by Novan. The person Holy who shit. oversees this tribunal is Tan Duk Tang, who later secedes Ho Chi Minh and is like this great revolutionary hero or whatever. And one of the other people who was also part of the like murder of this guy ends up being like second in command to Ho Chi Minh and stuff later. Damn, blood in. <laughs> Yeah. Um, That's the state communists. Mm -hmm. Then there's the communist opposition, the communist left opposition group. Uh, Not an incredibly original name. And they basically are the communists who don't take order from Russia. I like them more so that my bias is going to be towards them and uh, Novan is with them soon enough. And they're more or less Trotskyists. They, They are Trotskyists, which at basically at this point is like a communist who doesn't like Stalin. Anarchists are there and involved in all this struggle too, but not to the same degree. Uh, I believe it's isolated individuals and small groups. I haven't been able to find more information specifically about that yet. So the people who are the major players in a lot of this organizing stuff and who are like diehard about one ideology or another, they are not most people. Um, Most people are poor workers and peasants who are like, I'm a fuck up the French and taking care of each other sounds good rather than being like specifically ideologically committed. And so you'll see the majority of people who are the actual fighters will shift allegiances back and forth. Um, it's not just like the left opposition, like, yeah, these two different communist tendencies like kind of go back and forth a lot. The major players of both parties get arrested and exiled at the end of this whole 1930, 1931 thing. Um, they're sentenced to their exile or sentenced to hard labor or given the old choppity. Um, by the end of 1931, the revolt is crushed for good and France still rules Vietnam to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just kidding. They are very chumbawamba. They get right back up again. And they do something particularly cool. That imprisoned journalist, Nguyen An Ninh, he's out now. And as of 1931, he gets out. And he refuses to align himself to one of these communist parties or another um, later after his death, the Communist Party is like, oh, his whole thing about refusing to align to parties is because he liked us. Ah, uh, yes. It was just to get people to join the Communist Party. That's why he refused to join It was the all Communist about Party. optics. Yeah. yeah for yeah. sure. For sure. Um, yeah. He um, not only, but he refused to join the parties, the left opposition or the, you know, the Trotskyists or the Stalinists, but he was completely down to work with them. And his whole thing was that he kept the two together for years. Like long after the rest of the world where the Trotskyists and the Stalinists are murdering each other, he's holding them together. 
Together with the party communists, opposition communists, and anarchists, he starts a newspaper called The Struggle. Um, it's in French, not Vietnamese. And the reason it's in French is because the French believe in free speech. In, ah. in, Fre- in French. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so Got it. I'm with you. Okay. If you live in Saigon at this point, you can have a journal with free speech as long as it's in French. If it's in Vietnamese, it needs to be approved. Okay. So basically, every single like article and every single issue is like, please, for the love of God, translate this and tell it to people who don't speak French. Yeah, ideally. And for most of the paper's existence, it was legally owned by a, a white man, an anti-colonial Frenchman named Edgar Ganofsky, who used his citizenship to get help them get away with shit. Privilege doesn't save him in the end. He dies in poverty in the early 1940s. But he's basically like, there's going to be a couple... Um, French colonials who uh, are entirely militantly committed to the um, anti-colonial struggle. Okay, well, they can hang. Yeah. And this was a, a particular achievement that it gets the Stalinists and the Trotskyists working together. Because at this point, Stalinists are hunting down and doing the old murder, which is a euphemism for killing, mm-hmm. um, on Trotskyists. In Vietnam, there was some peace, which really lends credit to the idea that even the party communists there at the end of the day were actually looking to free Vietnam more than they were like looking to specifically be like, oh my God, we love the USSR or whatever the fuck. And the paper starts running political candidates. It's like this big central leftist organization basically at this point. And it includes a popular front of candidates from both the communist party and the communist opposition. And they fund all of this by opening a bar. Interesting. I like them. Novon starts writing for it, basically information about what's going on in the plantations, I think through his connections in the villages where he's from. That's cool. The peace between the communists doesn't last. Oh. Yeah. The thing about being beholden to a foreign power is that you're beholden to a foreign power. Yeah. And this thing happens that normally is kind of good elsewhere. On May 2nd, 1935, Russia and France make friends, the Franco-Soviet Mutual Assistance Pact. And from their point of view, it makes some sense, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, Hitler is starting to get all Hitlerian, and history shows pretty clearly that it takes Western Europe and Russia working together to stop the Nazis. So, Yeah, that's okay. So, so like, okay, you you get why, why the USSR wants to be friends with France for a moment, 1935. But... Beholden to foreign power, the communists are no longer allowed to fight the French. A pardon? Yeah. In Vietnam, orders came from the Comintern, the high the Communist Party, that the Vietnamese Communist Party has to stop trying to become free of France because France is Russia's ally and the Communist Party is beholden to Russia and can't make their own decisions. That's whack. Tons of the Communist Party go along with this. I think a ton of other people stop being in the Communist Party because they're, they were willing to be in the Communist Party as a means to get rid of the French. Right. The struggle, that newspaper, it doesn't report on any of this because it's trying desperately to keep the peace. But huh. now the, the Trotskyists are like, okay, if we don't start doing our own thing, resistance to France is just going to become bourgeois nationalist. It's just going to be you know, the rich people who want to, like, restore the monarchy or have a bourgeois right. republic or whatever. Right. Because the state communists are out of the fight. So uh, 
Novon and some others decide to act, and they form the League of Internationalist Communists. And their strategy, which I really like, is that workers, peasants, and industrial like workers, both peasants and industrial workers, should form action committees, elect delegates, and create a bottom-up communist revolution. Uh, okay. I got no notes. Um, yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. Uh, he still had to keep his day job. And he, at night, he and his friends start building a printing press out of salvaged parts and starting an illegal Vietnamese-language newspaper called Permanent Revolution, which supported revolt and condemned Russia's open support for French imperialism. Ugh. That's so sweet. I know. Things get spicy again real quick. Wagon drivers go on strike, and the internationalist communists support them. Repression goes after that, um, the Popular Front newspaper, The Struggle, and its editors end up going back to jail. The paper keeps going, even as its like main people get thrown in jail. Vaughn and his friends have to move their press constantly, their weird steampunk salvage parts fucking press. That is honestly so cool. Just thinking about, like, I couldn't do that now with the internet and, like, yeah. five YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. He's a clerk. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's not a coincidence how many historical revolutionaries' background is typesetting. Mm-hmm. Like, but there's hope on the horizon, and people are actually, this is a very hopeful period, partly because the workers in France go on strike, too, in the mid-30s. The revolution feels so close that they can touch it. They set about pulling together a call for workers to, as Vaughn put it, storm the gates of hell. Hell and yeah. Then, and then, um, and then they all get arrested, including, okay. including Vaughn, before they could do any storming or even any advocacy of storming. Okay. He's, he's 22 or 23. But you know who else is prison? Not puppy therapy. No, no, that's true. Yeah, you know what? Let's let's stick to puppy therapy. And what was the other one? What's the other today's sponsor? Uh, free uh, hot soup. Yeah, free hot soup. Well, everyone, if you want free hot soup, go to Food Not Bombs. If you don't have one, you should start one. Or if you don't like that particular framework, call it something else. Make your really care. soup with your friends. Yeah. Soup for your family. Yeah, call it soup with your fa- for your family. And that is the advertiser. That's enough. That could support. That has enough money to run this podcast, right? Well, if we need any extra money, we'll use some other ads. Yeah, okay, okay. Okay. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. 
I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. And we are back. And he's about to go to jail. He's 22 or 23 at this point, 1936. They come into the offices he's working out of, and they drag him off. And they make him watch as they raid both his mother's house. Basically, they, like, I think he probably planned this with his mother. Because uh-huh. he's kind of a, um, he gets along well with his mom. That's good. He tells them, he's, they're like, where do you live? And he's like, oh, my mom's house. And so they go to his mom's house, and they, like, take some of his books and stuff from his, uh-huh. his old room. And then they're like, yeah, but where are your clothes? And he's like, ah, oh, shit, you got me. Yeah, I didn't think so about if you're planning, that. Yeah. If you're planning to use your mom's house as the place you claim to live, you need to keep enough clothes there to make it believable. That's right. So then they go to his own house and they yeah. raid it as well. And at this point, he's like, I'm in it. This is my life. Yeah. Like, okay. I, I mean, he's already started groups. He's already been working on this stuff. But he's like, this is, this is the moment. And then his quote-unquote civilizers take him to jail and torture the shit out of him. Uh, Humans are very creative. Yeah. At exactly two things, execution and torture. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to read, tell you about this particular torture, but it's one I'd never heard of before. It sucked. Then they send him to prison, which also sucked. And while in prison, along with his other prisoners, he started organizing because, of course you do. Amazing. Because... Can't stop, won't stop. Yeah. You send organizers to prison, you're getting an organized prison. That's right. The 20 or so prisoners in his cell elected him delegate, and he was tasked with making demands of the prison. First, it was, we need another jug of water. So when they came in, the the screws came in the morning, he was like, hey, we need another jug of water. And they were like, what? And he was like, we need another jug of water. And so they drag him off in front of the head jailer who screams at him, says, I'm going to disembowel you, holds up the book of French rules. And then gives him another jug of water. Oh, okay. Uh, Every morning thereafter, the prisoners compiled a list of their needs and delivered them to the guards. Oh, yes. 
And they do the best they can. Life sucks in the prison, but his family mm-hmm. walks all the way from the village to see him when they can. They all pass news about the prison out to the radical press. And the one upside of the Franco-Russian pact is that it lightens some of their sentencing, probably, because communism was no longer considered the enemy of the French people. But he still is taken in front of a judge and gets a year for running a newspaper. That's, you know, in the scheme of things, maybe not yeah, super exactly. long. I mean, I personally would not, I'm not like, yay. No, I don't want to, yeah. But. Yeah, no, totally. It's, it's, I mean, that's one of the things is like, um, the prison system in the United States is so nightmarish yeah. that fairly regularly I read about these incredibly horrible regimes where they're perfectly willing to carpet bomb people. Mm-hmm. Where prison is like roughly equivalent or a little bit nicer than United States prisons. Right. And I'm not trying to paint the French colonial prison as nice. I'm trying to specifically say that America is a hellscape. A lot of prisoners were in there for shit like raised a red flag on a tree in his village or read out a leaflet on a street. Some of them had five years extra tagged on for every time they shouted down with French imperialism during their sentencing, which at that point, like some of these people were just like, just fucking kept yelling it. Yeah. And no matter how long they got sentenced to, French imperialism lasts at the longest you could possibly pretend 40 more years, um, by most standards, substantially less than that. Most standards, less than 10 more years. Mm Mm-hmm. Outside of prison, people kept revolting. Rice planters, brick makers, sugar refiners, soap makers, streetcar drivers all go on strike. The rubber plantations, such as our friend the Michelin rubber plantation, the workers go on strike there, including against the kind of thing that you would not imagine needing to go on strike against. What is it? The fact that there are private prisons on this plantation just for workers. That must be a widely, deeply felt issue. That makes sense, though. Yeah. You imagine if, the, I mean, the Amazon warehouses also sound like hell, but imagine if they just, like, literally had private prisons in them. 20,000 coal miners go on strike. Coal miners are going to come back really awesome in a little bit. Okay. In Saigon, striking workers are fed by peasants from the countryside because, again, shit happens when you get the peasants and the workers working together. Yeah. Uh, sawmill workers. Sawmillers? Occupy their workshops. Oh, good old sit down. Yeah. And these revolts take on more and more of a syndicalist tendency, intentionally specifically named as such syndicalist tendency, a bottom-up communism. Um, And like largely is being done, not necessarily, I can't tell whether it's being done by the opposition communists or whether it's being done with the style of communism that they advocate because after all, the Communist Party wasn't organizing against imperialism at this point. They were buds with imperialism at this point. Um, now, to be fair, tell that to all the imprisoned Communist Party anti-imperialists who are in prison. Like, anyway. So Vaughn gets out of prison. It's 1937. And this is how you know he's a good person. The first thing he did when he got out of prison is he went home to his village and he saw his mom. I fucking knew it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. No. That's also his, really sweet. I know. His his dad has died. His dad died when he was like uh, 10 or something like that. And his mom is in, increasingly retreating into the invisible world. Like um, she, you know, practices ancestral worship and she spends more of her time talking to spirits and hanging out with spirits than the human world, which fucking fair at this point, you know? 
Yeah, that that makes sense. I can't blame her. Yeah. Another thing that happens in 1937 is the Stalinists, who are part of that common front newspaper, The Struggle, they get a letter from their higher-ups saying they can't play nice with the Trotskyists anymore. In fact, they're all actually kind of in trouble for having played nice with the Trotskyists for so long, which is why you shouldn't have higher-ups. Yeah. Uh, the Stalinists left the paper. They started their own paper, and then they said that all the Trotskyists are fascists. Okay. It's like Twitter, but with more guns. Oh, my God. Okay. Which is saying something based on current Twitter. So, um, meanwhile, the French have their popular front government at this point that is ostensibly socialist. So they changed the colonial code because the socialists are in charge of France. They changed they the language. they still la- have a colonial code. Oh, yeah. Literally all they changed is the language. Um, <laughs> it used to say that colonial subjects had to do, quote, compulsory public service work, but they changed it to, quote, community work. No. Uh. <laughs> canceled. Mm-mm, canceled. No. Yep. Sorry, 1936 France. You're. All right. This time period of France is about to get canceled hard, but in a different direction. <laughs> when the new Popular Front colonial governor shows up. So when the, the new Popular Front colonial governor shows up, the cops arrest and torture all the protesters. Thanks, Western liberals who pretend to be leftists. Hashtag inner Vietnam. Did they, did they have those stickers back then? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Hashtags were a big... Um, I'm trying to come up with like a way of... I got nothing. We can't come up with a weird old-timey way that hashtags okay. could have come up with. I'm sorry. Maybe it, people carving them into... I got nothing. Okay, so Vaughn sets himself up editing an, at another paper for a living. And he goes on to make pamphlets. Because at this point, he's like basically a newspaper guy. Mm-hmm. And he goes on making his own zines and pamphlets and stuff. And he basically is discussing how to organize syndicates and how to do bottom-up communism. Because this is like a huge way that they're doing the organizing. They're just telling people how, to, how they can do their own shit. Right. So the cops kick in his door and drag him right back to prison. Classic. Yeah. That'll teach you to make zines about syndicates. So he gets out and he fucks off to Cambodia for a few years. He's yeah, like... Okay. Fuck all this. He goes mm-hmm. to Cambodia, which is still part of French Indochina. I like spent a while reading about the relationship between Vietnam and Cambodia at this point. And it's basically it's like the um the Vietnamese folks living in Cambodia were like seen as a privileged class and therefore in some ways resented by the Cambodian folks. Mm-hmm. But he's just fucking trying to lay low as far as I can tell for a couple years in the middle of all this shit. He is being constantly watched and he still writes for papers in Saigon, but honestly. He's, he's just trying to work. And the, the political differences between communists and Vietnam are getting more and more intense as the 1930s come to an end. Both sides are running candidates for the colonial government. It's no longer a, a slate between the two. Um, the Stalinists have a collaborationist set of candidates that are support the French. The Trotskyists have a slate of candidates that oppose the French. Okay, choice seems pretty clear here. It was a fairly clear choice for the the public as well. The Stalinists are pushing for support in World War II. The Trotskyists are like, no, we should not be taxed like be conscripted to fight in Western wars. We tried yeah, no that. Thanks. It sucked. Yeah. And so the Trotskyists win um, oh. very clearly and strongly. And I doubt it's because people were like, I specifically care about this Russian polit- political difference and more because... Yeah, no, I just don't want to go fight a war I don't give a fuck about. Yeah, exactly. 
the French colonial guy, the the governor general, I think he's the popular front, ostensibly socialist guy. He put it bluntly. While the Stalinist communists have understood that the interests of the Annamite Vietnamese masses require them to ally with France, the Trotskyists have not hesitated to incite the natives to revolt so as to take advantage of a possible war in order to gain total liberation. Don't you hate it when people manipulate the political situation for something they want? Oh, I hate it when that happens. I know, like freedom for themselves. Oh, oh fucking Trixie Trotskyists. 40, unfortunately, the, the candidates that they're running in are basically the local elections. They don't have any power in the colonial government, as far yeah. as I can tell. I haven't read the details, but they clearly are not exerting enough power to stop the fact that 40,000 Vietnamese are script, conscripted anyway. 20,000 of them as soldiers, of whom 6,000 die, and 20,000 as laborers. One interesting cool thing about conscripting a bunch of laborers from your colonial government right before you're conquered by the Nazis is that those 20,000 laborers have to work for the Nazi war machine, essentially, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Then, Russia switches sides again and joins the Hitler side in the old Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. And since Okay. Russia I'm, I'm and Germany. Right. Yep. Russia and Germany invade Poland. War is to get declared. Everything starts happening faster. Now the Communist Party is allowed to fight the French again because Russia's on Hitler's side and hates the French. Okay. Yeah. And it's going to go back and forth so many times. It's just it, the Vietnamese people are just ping-ponged by which side Russia's on so many times. And No Von is deported from Cambodia to Vietnam uh, without any particular new charge. He's just rounded up as a troublemaker, basically. Um, a friend in Vietnam had written him and been like, hey, what Trotsky book should I read? And he was like, read these two. And then, like, he was um, taken to prison. Damn, he just cannot catch a break. He absolutely cannot for the first 38 years of his life. He's held in jail for months and then is taken for trial. And then to check off a box on the cool people bingo, he defends himself in court, but not because he's cheeky like all of the other people right. who've defended themselves in court, because they don't give him a lawyer. Ah, right. Okay. Um, the only evidence against him is that in his, all of his letters, that they've been reading all of his letters, he right. at one point mentioned two Trotsky books by name. He gets eight months in prison for this. Wow. And he's... And then in with the political, so all the political prisoners are sort of kept in one area, which is that's a bad idea on their part. I know, yeah. I know. I mean, I'm here for it, but that's a yeah, that's a rookie mistake. Yeah, it's amateurish. There is a new crew in the political prisoner camp. Uh, okay. The the communists who've never actually been the only people on the scene, but now they're like extra, not the only people on the scene. You have the Caudaiists. And Caudaism is a syncretic religion that was developed in the 1920s that has millions of followers today. And it's a, I can't do it justice. It's a monotheistic religion that seems to pull from everything that was present in, um, in Vietnam at that period. And they kept getting pr thrown in prison because they burned their tax cards and refused to cooperate with the French government. Okay. Which is a cool first move for a new religion. And Novon writes an article about why communists should be in solidarity with them and then goes through a fair amount of work to get that article smuggled out of prison with a guard bribed with opium. Nice. Okay. All right. I know. I like this guy. Savvy. Yeah. He serves his time. 
He's let out. He is rearrested that day. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, literally, he walks out, and there's this woman with his bicycle who's like, hey, you should follow me. And he's like, what? And he follows her, and they arrest him. Wait, what? That's entrapment. Well, not that that, whatever. Okay, there's no whatever. charges. Oh. <laughs> they just arrest him. Oh, okay. Never, I, okay. Yeah. That's good. That's where we're at in this particular. Uh, they they stop trying. They're like, you know, they're like, oh, you only got him eight months when we arrest him for writing letters. So they send him, they call it house arrest, but it's exile. He gets sent to a distant rural town called uh, Travin. Okay. And he's allowed in the whole town. He has to not, he's not allowed to leave and he has to check in every two weeks with the authorities. Like, I literally don't think there was any charge besides people screaming communist in his face. Um, okay. He says about making his money, making rice cakes and selling fish in the market. Plus, he's now also making and selling traditional medicines that he learned how to make from fellow prisoners. Somewhere along the way in all of this, he has three kids, which he does not mention until the second to last page of his memoir. Well, you know, they can write their own memoir. I know. And it's like, I, I've gone back and forth about whether he's just pulling a misogyny and just being like, oh, family doesn't matter. Yeah. Or if his like wife is like or partner or baby mama or whatever is like, leave me the fuck out of it. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he loves his mom. I know. Exactly. And he talks about his brothers and shit all the time and his sisters. So anyway, somewhere along the way. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's now or later, but here's where I chose to throw it in. He ends up with some kids. Meanwhile, while he's in exile, you'll be shocked to know what the Vietnamese people are doing. Lay it on me. They're fighting the French. No, what? (laughs) You haven't mentioned that. Yeah, I know. It's coming out of nowhere. So Japan has sort of invaded Vietnam. Right. Yeah. People are still salty about that. Yeah, and at this point, they're sharing it with France. Um, I think this is when the—I think there's only—I don't remember. I couldn't figure out whether there's overlap with the Vichy, the the Nazi French, and the Japanese, like whether it was only ever them or whether the Japanese ever shared Vietnam with the ostensibly socialist French. I'm not sure. But at this point, Vichy government— Nazi, you have Nazi France is now the controllers of Vietnam, and the Viet- and the Japanese show up. Okay. And yeah, people are salty. At first, they're like, okay, the Japanese are going to help us out. Mm-hmm. But then the Japanese don't help them out. Instead, no, they just conquer it. Right. So people revolt. This time, it was primarily organized by the Communist Party. Um, most of their leaders are in jail, but um, it doesn't really matter at the end of things. Um, and they've got some solid networks. Uh, one article I read referred to them as more as like surfing the wave of revolt rather than being the direct organizers of it. And that might be accurate also. Oh, interesting. Okay. But to some degree, they were directing shit that was going to happen anyway. Some degree, they were organizing it, whatever. Um, a lot of the fighters during this uprising are not communists. They're more religious than political. You have the Kaudaius that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And you also have the Hao Hao, who are a Buddhist sect formed in 1939. This is kind of what I was talking about where I was like, Every religion is getting into this fight in like really interesting and different ways, you know? Yeah, that's cool. And so the Hao Hao are a Buddhist sect formed in 1939. And them and the Kaudaius are some of the main people fighting the French for decades. Um, the Hao Hao hold large swaths of territory. 
They end up fighting the National Liberation Front alongside the state communists until the final victory of state communists in 1975. Of course, as soon as the party came into power, they outlawed Kaudaism, and it wasn't re-legalized again until 1997. But the revolt itself, November 1940, against the French and the Japanese both, the whole western half of Cochin China is revolting, uh, the southern region of, of Vietnam. Peasants are storming the barracks to steal weapons. They're singling out and killing all the torturers. Like, nice. at whenever they... Yeah. Um, and they're starting to set up autonomous regions, and they're succeeding for, for short periods of time. And because patterns repeat themselves, they get carpet-bombed and machine-gunned, and hundreds of them are guillotined in the streets. Okay. Survivors are put into prison barges and left to die. And the whole uprising failed for a bunch of reasons, one of which is that they planned it around the French being busy invading Thailand, but at the last minute, the French didn't invade Thailand. You know who did invade Thailand? No. Um, Let's just stick to the soup thing. I really am really excited about the soup, um, free hot soup. And turtles. Uh, I like turtles. Turtles can support the podcast. I think so. All right. Anything else? Any any sponsors were missing, Snow? I don't think so. Okay. You're looking around on your desk trying to find something I, to sponsor. Yeah, the... yeah. I totally am. <laughs> I was like, my Baofeng radio? I don't know. <laughs> Sponsored my, by uh, Baofeng. The easiest way to commit thing? SEC crime. Yeah. Only if they find you. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's so easy. Hard to get caught. Mm-hmm. Anyway, here's some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, 
but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, in case you're wondering, with this, uh, this failed uprising... Mm-hmm. whether the Communist Party like lost their shit and started killing a bunch of their own people, like a bunch of cartoon villains? The answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. However, here's where it starts becoming really important to note, not nearly to the same degree that the French and Japanese government was running around killing everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's where some of the bias stuff, my own bias, right. I have to be really careful about is because when I'm like, going forward, the state communists are going to do a lot of pretty awful and indiscriminate murder. And mm-hmm. it's not going to hold a candle to the indiscriminate murder of the colonial powers that they're fighting. Right. Vaughn, for his part, he's in exile near the edge of this uprising. He doesn't hear about it until it's over. He just gets to see the carts full of dead peasants roll past town. Um, God, that's devastating. I know. And he's also getting sick. After nine months in exile, he starts spitting up blood. Oh my God, does he have tuberculosis? Well, you're reading the script? No. <laughs> yeah, he has tuberculosis. Oh, um, man. He gets leave to go to Saigon for medical care. Out of the blue, he didn't expect this to happen. His mom shows up to escort him back to Saigon. <laughs> I know, I started I crying when mom. I was writing it. I know. This mom, the peasant who prefers the company of the dead to the living, her son is sick and just out of prison, sort of. So she comes by herself across the country to bring him back to Saigon on a boat. He spends a month in a hospital. Yeah. Because he's got tuberculosis. I, was, I had this whole drum roll thing, but you know, he, he, he caught on early. I'm sorry. He recovers partly. He recovers partly. Okay. He doesn't die of it. And he has to get a job. Uh, he's allowed to no longer be in exile somehow, or maybe he just doesn't go back. I'm not quite sure. He gets a job processing buffalo hides to send to the Japanese, which is terrible for his lungs and means he's like literally helping out his fucking occupiers and basically is like it's this or die of starvation. So okay. that's got to fucking sucked. And then his memoirs fast forward through the entire fucking World War II. What? I know. I like literally got confused and like had to keep scrolling back and forth. Scrolling. It was a physical book. Um, but shit is I- happening. Yeah, it sure is. Especially up north. Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the Viet Minh, um, they're fighting guerrilla style against the Japanese and Vichy France with the help of the U.S., of course, because the U.S. has armed every single person we fought against. I'm actually curious if there was anyone that we that the U.S. fought against in the 20th century that they didn't arm first. But Themselves? Uh, so, near the end of the war, Vietnamese folks are starving. Um mm-hmm. We were talking about earlier. Likely a million people, I've seen up to two million people starved in Vietnam during World War II mm-hmm. uh, due to a combination of famine and how the Japanese just stole food for themselves. 
Um, and you were talking about how this is something that your family talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my grandma, like, well, my great grandma and great grandpa were alive until I was like 20 something, like mm-hmm. early mid 20s. And so it was just like in their senile days, they would like mention stuff. And my grandma still mentions every now and then that like the siblings that she, that I've met, um, they're like 20 plus years apart. Yeah. And so there was like a bunch of siblings in between that just died. Yeah, fuck. Mm-hmm. I just I can't even really wrap my head around being in this country and having to work for and having all your food stolen by yep. your occupier. And like, I don't know. Then two days after Germany surrenders, fucking overnight, March 9th to 9th to 10th, the night between the 9th mm-hmm. and the 10th of March, 1945, Japan ended French Indochina. And they just dipped? Uh, they just fucking, fucking arrested all the French. Oh, okay. Um, they created the independent state, quasi-independent state of Vietnam. Uh, and then immediately occupied it. The Nationalist Party, along with the Hao Hao and the Kaodaists, they called for a big demonstration of gratitude to the Japanese for their liberation. And the Japanese were like, hell no, you can't demonstrate. Um, even though these people had like literally, actually the Hao Hao and the Kaodaists had helped Japan do the actual rounding up of all the French and shit like that, you know? Okay. And then Japanese started looting the place and murdering people and kidnapping women for sex slavery. Mm-hmm. None of this lasts very long because on August 15th, 1945, Japan surrendered. And then they shake it's fucking messier somehow still. France is like, but we want our colony back. Ho Chi Minh is like, no, you can't have your fucking colony back. Fuck you. And that's how you get the first Indochina war with the Viet Minh versus the French. It's actually a diverse group of nationalists and leftists versus the French um, at first. Before they'd even taken real power, they start rounding up and killing and torturing all the opposition groups. I want to quote uh, Vaughn about my favorite action during all of this, which is not, not the this not meaning the Stalinist murdering people, but about all the peasant revolt, all this stuff that's happening. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah. No, I, my, my favorite time that the Stalinists murdered people. Okay, so... A burst of wild hope filled us when we learned that 30,000 miners in the Hongai Kamfa coal mines had taken their fate into their own hands and elected worker councils to manage the coal production themselves. The miners were now in control of the public services in the area, the railways, and the telegraph system. They were applying the principle of equal pay for all types of work, whether manual or intellectual. They'd even begun a literacy program, setting up courses in in which those who were literate taught their fellow workers how to read. In this working-class commune, life was organized with no bosses and no cops. Oh, that's so awesome. I, I fucking... I want to read entire books just about this, and I want us to talk about it as much as we talk about shit that had the label anarchy attached to it. Mm-hmm. Because that's know? really just, like, that... I would just want to know, like, read someone's diary from that time. I know. I know. Just like, what was like the average day like? Because I think this kind of stuff really just gets really glorified, like you were just saying. And what really interests me is just like the everyday aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Within a few months, the Viet Minh arrested the leaders of this working class commune, forced a rigid hierarchy on the place. 
Why? Yeah. In Saigon, the Viet Minh held a big rally declaring the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. One of their old friends from that newspaper, The Struggle, asked mm-hmm. at this rally, well, who elected you? Yeah, good question. He was found shot dead a few days later in the streets. The People's Army they had in the South consisted of river pirates and the people who had served as the riot cops under the French and then the Japanese. Mm. So basically the people who are like, as long as we get to crack heads, don't care what cracking mm-hmm. heads for. All right. And this was actually... Have LRADs, you think? Probably. Um, just going around going, weir, weir. Yeah. Yeah. And this is even before this particular meeting in Saigon. It was before the French came back and tried to rule it again. And the Viet Minh said, no one is allowed to carry guns when the French come back except our cops. Which is actually a weird mirror of that time that the dynasty, the Nguyen dynasty, refused to arm the populace. Right. You know? And then they lost. Yeah. The Trotskyists and the people themselves were like, hey, we should carry guns when the French come. Yeah, absolutely. And fortunately, no one listened to the Viet Minh about this particular thing. And specifically, they said, we should organize ourselves into people's militias. And so people started doing that. And then people started setting up people's councils based on neighborhoods, self-organizing, um, and then, but, but doing organizing all across Saigon. And Novan is running around buying weapons on the black market and stashing them uh, in various places so the different people's militias can get access to them. This guy just, like, does not stop. No, he, he is fucking... And he is disabled. He is, like... Right. Inca- like, he is a very sick, lung-affected tuberculosis patient right. as okay. he does this. And he still does this. And has three kids. Yeah. Also. Yeah, somewhere in this, all of this. At some point. Yeah. I hope he's okay. a good dad. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. The French show up. The Viet Minh are like, hey, buds, welcome back. We're pals, right? And give it a big warm welcome. I don't quite understand this part. The French, with British soldiers backing them, order them to dissolve and have everyone and everyone's disarmed. Uh, no one goes along with it. But in order to appease the French and maybe negotiate as equals, that's my best guess about what's happening in Saigon with the Viet Minh. I don't think this is like Ho Chi Minh's strategy. I think this is what the Viet Minh right. are doing in Saigon, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the Viet Minh blame the people's militias and the people's councils. They're like, oh, they're the ones who didn't like you. And since the Viet Minh run the prisons, um, because of course they do, everyone else is like, listen, the people's councils and Viet Minh are like, yeah, we're, Viet Minh are like, we're going to get the fucking prisons. They start rounding up and arresting the people's councils. Classic, classic, classic. And this was... They didn't like the French. This was them attempting to, like, negotiate power or something, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, Soon enough, they call for a general strike, which leads to martial law, and the city hall is stormed by the British and the French, and so are the prisons. And now all the political prisoners, all the people council prisoners who were arrested by the Stalinists are now in the French hands. And the, the whole, I mean, the whole country is in revolt, and the city puts up this desperate resistance. They barricade the streets. They're met by machine gun fire. The French left calls this the dirty war, in part because most of the people in the colonial forces were colonial subjects themselves. Like the British are there with their Indian soldiers and the French are there with their Algerian oh, soldiers. So it's I basically see. like making people of color fight people of color. Mm. The colonial forces hold the city center. The Viet Minh and their coalition um, and the people's militias, because um, the Viet Minh's coalition includes, I think, a lot of the other religious groups. I'm not, uh, mm-hmm. this shit's so fucking messy. They hold the outskirts of the city. 
Meanwhile, they go around and kill all the Trotskists they can find. Novan has to flee. Him and his friend. Again. Yeah. They're smuggled out of the city in a riverboat. So he goes home to his village, arms his mm-hmm. brothers, says goodbye to his mother, and goes and joins a people's militia. <laughs> I know. He's so I just cute. love that he loves his mom. I know. Like Ugh. he gets, he's like, I'm gonna go like kill some motherfuckers, but also I love you, mom. Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna give everyone in the family a hand, handguns too, because we're gonna need them. I mean, that honestly, I can't say that I haven't had that daydream. Yeah, totally. Or day nightmare, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So in the city, other people, people's militias, all the non Vietnam fighters, they stay and fight. Hundreds of them die, including the workers that the newspaper, The Struggle, uh, they form a like hundred strong block that I think is like gunned down by the, the French, not the Viet Minh, I believe, on a, on a bridge. Out in the countryside, Vaughn and a few other folks from his people's militias are arrested by the Viet Minh. And the Viet Minh at this point are using local bandits and local ex-colonial cops. And they're rounding up any prisoners they can to look good to their bosses, including every Catholic they can find, deciding that all Catholics are working with the enemy and executing them, plus just torturing people into false confessions of working with the French and then executing them. And Novan spends several days in a Viet Minh jail in the countryside, listening to people being tortured and executed. One of his fellow prisoners is a surveyor who'd been arrested for helping divvy up land that the peasants had stolen back from a rich landowner. Um, because the Stalinists had decided to make common cause with the rich against the poor. That seems uh, fucked up. Yeah, it's not so good. No. But then he's rescued. The rest of his unit finds him. Oh, okay. And they have negotiations with the Viet Minh. The negotiations are basically, there's more of us. We have more guns. Let Mm -hmm. them the fuck go. Yeah. (laughs) That's compelling, I think. It is. It's a strong negotiating position. Yeah. And so he gets out and he rejoins the people's militia. And when he gets out, he finds out that three of his friends had tried to get into Saigon to help. They had been arrested by the French, released, and then were executed by the Viet Minh. Oh. And at this point, Vaughn, he can't keep up with the militia. His tuberculosis has ruined his lungs. But he's like, gotta be of use. So he heads off to Saigon, where he literally just heard about three of his friends fucking going through hell and then dying. So he hides from both sides of the war, even though he's a, he himself is on one side of the war. Along the way, he sees how the French, during their recolonizing, they are brutal. And they are, they are in order of magnitude or more, more brutal than the Viet Minh. And that is the thing I, I do need to feel like. Like mm-hmm. at one point, I try not to go with like too many of the specific descriptions of bad shit, but at one point at least... They're like booby trapping dead children. What? So that when people go to go find their dead child, they're blown up by a hand grenade. Who's doing this? The French. Okay, that's what I thought. And one of the reasons okay. I include that is because, like, part of the Western demonization of um, of the Viet Cong is like booby right. traps and shit. Right. Um, and so, like, we learned it from you, Dad. Is like a pretty fucking right. valid. Anyway. His own village was attacked by the French. His brother had been shot in the knee but survived. Okay. French colonists who sided with the Vietnamese were rounded up and beaten. 
One woman was stripped to the waist and marched through the streets with a sign around her neck that says, I signed a Marxist resolution. And it's worth noting that I think overall the French aren't murdering the French citizens who are siding with the Viet, the Viet Minh, but they are absolutely like beating the shit out of them and arresting them and subjecting them to weird torture. Okay. He's also hearing about more and more people killed by the Viet Minh, about doctors and comrades, about a teacher killed by his own former student. And people hide him. He spends several days lying flat in a fishing boat, talking with the fisher when the fisher takes it out to go mm-hmm. fishing. Um, he spends longer in a series of safe houses once he gets to Saigon. His own brother, brother number 10, was murdered by the Viet Minh. Damn. And so he just keeps hearing terrible news. All across the country, peasants had redivided the land under the slogan, the land to those who work it, which is a pretty reasonable slogan. Yeah. And probably better than the... Um, the French one? Use the French to progress our society or whatever. Yeah. Only to have Ho Chi Minh make declarations that it was illegal to, you know, make communism. Okay. The various religious sects that had fought for the revolution were getting persecuted too. And by persecuted, okay. I mean murdered. Right. At least a ton of their leaders, uh, plus all the non-aligned nationalists. The Hao Hao, after, the, after Viet Minh tried to assassinate their leader, and I forgot to mention that his name was the Mad Monk, they held their territory and they killed the Viet Minh who tried to enter their territory because the Viet Minh were trying to kill them. Yeah, that tracks. All the while, they stayed fighting against the French. But then in a master stroke of giving a huge chunk of people over to the enemy, the Viet Minh successfully assassinated the Mad Monk on the next try in 1947, and the Hao Hao started fighting for the French instead. Um, what? Okay, all right. I, I will say that of all these people, the, the communist opposition group is the one that, even when the Viet Minh were killing them, did not go and then join the French. Yeah. Because the Cao Dais did the same thing. They were part of the resistance until the Viet Minh arrested their leader, and then they moved to support the French. The pirates, they'd been working for rebellion, for the rebellion, um, but demanded autonomy from the Viet Minh. So they were followed into the swamps and murdered, and the few survivors went and joined the French. Okay. The nationalists were executed by the Viet Minh. Okay. And I am certain that the Viet Minh used the fact that these people switched sides after being murdered to retroactively justify the murder. Well, yeah, that's usually... Okay. Yeah. That said, despite all the enemies the Viet Minh made, the French never retook Vietnam. In 1948, racked with tuberculosis, constantly under threat from both the French and the Viet Minh. Like, he's, like, opened a bookstore in Saigon that's getting, like, raided every fucking, just, like, constantly and shit. Vaughn decides to fuck off for good. He doesn't have a passport, but he pulls strings for a three-month travel visa to get to France. And he goes into exile in Marseille, which makes him the second person in 2023 on this podcast to go into exile in Marseille. Wow. Because Isabel Eberhardt did the same thing after the colonial forces in Algeria tried to kill her. He left his kids in someone's care without telling us, the reader, who. Hopefully a good person. I don't know. So he goes to France. By 1950, every one of his friends from from the opposition party who stayed in the country were dead. Oh, my God. That's so sad. I know. He describes... uh, a torture that several women friends of his were subjected to in a new creative way that I'm also not going to relate. Mm-hmm. And he moved to Paris. And he took badly paid work as an electrician. Um, he stayed involved in leftist politics his whole life. He tended to avoid ideological labels going forward. He was no longer a Trotskyist. He mostly rolled with the anti-authoritarian communists, especially what are called council communists, which are communists who believe in bottom-up communism, 
uh, mm-hmm. Belt Out of Workers Councils. He wrote a ton of history books. He also wrote his memoirs, and he wrote books about the connections between Taoism, anarchism, and other liberatory ideas through time and place. And that's more or less where we're going to leave it. It's a cliffhanger, but here's a short version for anyone needs to know. I'm kind of cutting it before the Second Indochina War because that's just so much more covered and understood. The Viet Minh fought the French to a draw in 1954, ending what's called the First Indochina War, and it left the country divided. There was supposed to be a countrywide election to unify the country. Um, The Viet Minh and the Soviet Union wanted the election to be overseen locally. The U.S., who I have no idea why they should have had any, any say in any of this, said that it should be supervised by the U.N. instead. This was rejected. There was no election. The Empire in Exile, who's the French puppet, mm-hmm. he appoints a prime minister instead of having an election. So the communists in the South rose up. This triggers the Second Indochina War, what the U.S. calls the Vietnam War, and the Vietnamese, I believe, call the American War. Mm-hmm. In that war, peasants kick the shit out of the U.S. in a long and bloody war, and they win, and the country is unified in 1975. And global capitalism wins. Yeah, it's <laughs> been a brutal decline. McDonald's does what the French and the U.S. failed to do. When Vietnamese state capitalism turned into private capitalism, Mm Novan wasn't surprised. The two were, he felt, blood brothers. Mm. Near the end of his life, he went home and visited his village for a while. His extended family was like, hey, you should stay here and die among family. And he he said, no, I'm I'm a wanderer. And he lived until 2005, into his early 90s. And he was undefeated, despite the best efforts made by all of the major antagonists who have ever been on this show. Capitalists, colonialists, authoritarian communists, and tuberculosis. Writing about that experience with his family and deciding not to return back to his village, he wrote, It's life, the instant of life that is eternity. I feel immortal. I feel eternal. You may die tomorrow or right now, but when you really immerse yourself in some project, you're living beyond the hundred revolutions of the earth around the sun. Actually, time has nothing to do with it. When you're eternal, you're eternal. Wow. That's really beautiful. I know. I really like it. And I feel like it's like, it come, it's like so good and useful and also comes from such an obvious, like you can, you can see how that comes from his experience of discussing eternity with his family. Right. You know? Um. Yeah, so reflections, uh, summations. Slight cliffhanger there, Magpie. I, I know. know. I know. It's, you, I was, I'm ready for part three, four, or five, six, seven, <laughs> eight, nine, ten, eleven, fuck twelve. Like, I'm, <laughs> I, it's interesting because, like, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last episode, but just like, the U.S. The I'm sorry, wow, oh my god, I'm tired. Um, the history that we see in the diaspora is never like this comprehensive, mm-hmm. and it's usually uh, skewed towards a uh, capitalist colonial perspective. Like my, like I spent years going to a Vietnamese school mm-hmm. on Sundays. And conveniently, this kind of stuff is not taught, you know? And so, like, I see so much of myself in Ngovan and, like, 
I don't know. I, I, I'm going to be chewing on this for a while, but like, I've always felt like, I don't know. I have, I don't know a lot of other like specifically like Vietnamese leftists, Mm -hmm. specifically not like anti-authoritarian. And so like hearing this and like, it feels really heartfelt. It feels like maybe I'm not so far from home in my spirit. Yeah, it makes sense that like you have this, you know, we end up with like history's one but written by the victors or whatever. And like mm-hmm. from a Western point of view, you have the capitalists. And from a, you know, state socialists of Vietnam point of view, you have the Communist Party. Right. And like, and it seems so funny to me because it seems so obvious that it's like, well, actually just people working together and fighting to like be free and equal is like clearly the cooler thing. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. And like, and neither side could, neither side comes off looking so great in this version of the story, mm-hmm. you know, so it makes sense that they don't want to talk about it, but it, I don't know. Yeah. And it, it you know, and I, I really worried, um, we talked a little bit about this um, mm-hmm. off, off mic earlier. I really worried about like, it's still worth absolutely celebrating the fact that the Vietnamese people like defeated every fucking major power. Yeah. You know? Um, Mm -hmm. And like, and in the end that was done in the name of state communism. Right. And that's like messy as hell, but like Mm -hmm. still worth, there's still something amazing there, you know? Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, so that's, so that's what I worry about by telling specifically this story about someone who, for very good reasons, absolutely hated the Viet Minh, you know? Mm-hmm. I, know. I mean, it's, you know, war is ugly. Yeah. I think I said this already. You know, war is ugly. Nobody ever wins, blah, blah, blah. And I think it maybe could be a lesson for folks who have, like, a really idealistic idea of, like, what collapse will look like yeah and that like their them and their affinity group will be the ones in charge yeah you know it's always it's never never going to be that simple yeah yeah just sad i feel like most Mm -hmm. episodes of this unfortunately follow this like you know and then these really like like for me the the most high point is these 30,000 miners living in a like communist society yeah. without cops, right? Yeah. You know, and so so that's like part of why their defeat is like extra sad is because like mm-hmm. because we're like it could have been so beautiful. And I'm sure yeah. it would have been absolutely messy and complicated too, right? You know, mm-hmm. but like um yeah. Well, uh anything you want to shout out or plug? Uh, yeah, if you like my cheesy jokes, you can hear more of those um, somewhere on the internet. But more specifically, um, I am part of Yellow Peril Tactical. You can find us on Instagram at yellow underscore peril underscore tactical. And we are also on Twitter, YPT Actual. And we also do a podcast, Tiger Block Podcast, where those are actually uh, more even more specifically where my bad jokes are but um, <laughs> uh you can hear us do weird interviews and us talking to each other 
Um, and yeah, that's where to find my, my shit posts as well on the internet. Hell yeah. I want to shout out that people should consider reading. Um, I read a lot of history books for my job. This is my job. You're listening to me do my job. I read a lot of history books for my job and In the Crossfire by Novan, NGO space V-A-N, was one of the most readable and interesting um, books I've read for this. And so I, I really recommend people people read it. And also, just as informative and meaningful is Escape from Incel Island, which is about an island of incels that the protagonist wants to not be on. Therefore, they must escape, which you can order directly from wherever you order books or from tangledwilderness.org or from AK Press. Sophie, you have anything you want to plug? I want to plug the uh, s- some resources for uh, the the earthquakes that the earthquakes that happened in Syria and oh, yeah. and Turkey. Yeah. Um, check out uh, the White Helmets. That's whitehelmets.org. Uh, check out the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation. That's sams-usa.net. Uh, doc- uh, doctors without borders. Doctors without borders.org. And then uh, uh, the Kurdish Red Crescent, and that's their website is h e y v a s o r u k dot org. Yeah, and uh, if you didn't listen to the episode that Shireen Lani Yunus did for "It Could Happen Here," on what's go- what happened there, please check it out. Yeah, that's what I got. All right. Well, we'll see you all next week with more tales of. People who... This is the first surviving of tuberculosis tale, actually. I mean, I, I think There's so. No, are you sure? <laughs> in, in our podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, okay. No, okay. I, <laughs> tuberculosis is about 50% death rate. Um, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, uh, but 50% still means there'd be a lot of people who survive it. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, in terms of this, ep- in terms of this show, it is... It usually... <laughs> Goes in and kills everyone the state doesn't. It's usually like, and uh, they died of TB. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rip. Yeah. All right. Bye, we'll everyone. We'll be back next week. Bye. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts on Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.